since we've been in John 7, we have been observing a dynamic that occurs at a very, let's call it, fiery time in the calendar of Israel. Because it's the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, as they would call it. Uh, it is where they remember their time in the desert, where they also recognize Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, all of it is bundled in to this maybe most populated feast in all of Israel. It's also when tensions are, are flaring quite high. It's also a time of really great joy as well. All of that is a kind of an ingredient into this electric atmosphere that is going on where we find Jesus now. Uh, and one of the things that is also happening concurrently all throughout Israel, all throughout this period of time, is messianic fever. And it becomes more and more fevered pitch with the ministry of Jesus, with each miracle of Jesus, with the radical claims of Jesus, with the divisiveness. I mean, Jesus is the one who says, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. I'm going to be dividing people by the way that I lay things down. And so as the anticipation of could he be, could he be, it also is also creating greater tension all along the way. And it's into this atmosphere where we will jump as we look at this passage. But today, people don't like that tension about Jesus. And people in a polite, southern, U.S., postmodern society would like to be able to say, well, what's nice for you is nice for you. What's good for me is good for me. If that speaks to your soul, well, then good on you with that. And, and if this is fulfilling and nourishing to my very spirit, well, then maybe that's what's appropriate for me. And, and it's where you get this kind of milk toast, mealy mouth regard of Jesus as something not divisive, but, but treating him more like a kitten than the Lion of Judah. And, and discounting everything that is written about him and that he says about himself. In an interview with uh, well, Bono from U2 uh, was, was being interviewed. And one of the questions that was asked was, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers. But son of God, Bono, isn't that far-fetched? Was the question. <laughs> it's a leading question. Uh, and, and here's what he said. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets like Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says... No, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And then people say, this is still Bono answering the question. And people say, no, 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 please. Just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We had that John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, and Jesus goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these Roman creeps, but actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes, and then Jesus says, staring at their shoes, and they say to themselves, oh my God, he keeps on saying this. 
So what you're left with is either Christ is who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking about nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, well, for me, that's what's far-fetched. Wow, right? I mean, what a, what a great answer that cuts right at the heart of how everybody wants to be let off the hook with Jesus. And there is a, a magnitude to the claim about Jesus that really can, cannot just simply be ignored or dismissed by any one of us. The other day, a, a letter came in the mail to our house and it was you know, addressed to my name and it was from the law offices of blah, 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 blah. And it, it looked rather official. It was actually rather official. And because of the magnitude of what was represented in that letterhead and in that letter itself, there's no way I was just going to go on with my day and say, ah, that's nice. You know, it's, that's probably just a, a, a good citizenship initiative on the part of someone. No, there's no way I would have peace with my day by just simply dismissing it. So I had to open it right away and then, you know, deal with it, by the way. Um, I'll tell you some other time. <laughs> it's not, it's not that, that um, compelling. But, 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 but I think likewise, what if... What if word came to you from the IRS that, ah, we're auditing you and we need you to open this email? Are you just going to dismiss it? No, you're going to have to deal with the claim thoroughly. Or, or, or what if there was the idea that, you know, you, you, you've passed go and community chest, you've inherited a fortune, right? If you've inherited a fortune, and that message has been delivered to you by courier, again, you're not just simply going to dismiss it. Those things are of trivial magnitude compared to the creator of the universe claiming to intervene, interrupt, disrupt our lives to try to get us to realize, I've got a message for you of even greater importance. And the, the way that people will deal with Jesus is come up with alternate theories of, of perhaps who he, who he is. So let, let's again begin in 25. At this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Now, when, when, when he actually arrived at the festival... Back in verse 12, it says, Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. Later on, in verse 20, the, the crowd says to him, after, after he says that my teaching comes from God, by the way, and I come from God, I don't speak on my own, I speak very much divine words. And what does the crowd say to him there? Again, this is not playing with a kitten, right? You, you're you're going to have to take a stand on all of this, and it is not something to be dismissed. The crowd there then says to him in verse 20, you're demon-possessed. The crowd asks, who's trying to kill you? So this, at least then, when you're dealing with Jesus, 
you realize you're going to end up in a camp somewhere. You, you might say, well, he's a good man. Or no, he's a liar. Or no, he's demon-possessed. But, but moving on, uh, back to where we were in verse 26. Have the authorities really concluded he's the Messiah? But we know where this man's from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Uh, of course, later on, they're even going to say, we do know that the Messiah does come from Bethlehem and from the line of David. So there, were, there was no monolithic view of Messiah origin, but, but yet still monolithic speculation. Could the Messiah be among us now at this feast? Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority. By, by the way, he's shouting all these things. But he who sent me is true, and you do not know him. But I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Again, it, it, it's very easy just to kind of imagine these things and not feel the massive tension that is happening in these temple courts at this time. As they tried to seize him, no one, uh, in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So it's getting very serious now. Jesus said, I'm with you only for a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, uh, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks, the diaspora? Teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you won't find me. Where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival. We'll talk about this on Tuesday night, by the way. This last and greatest day of the festival and what Jesus says here. Uh, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By the way, on the last and greatest day of the festival, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam because Sukkot was all about the wandering in the wilderness, living in tents for 40 years. And during this festival each year, the Israelites would live in tents and be reminded of the provision of God while they wandered for 40 years in an absolute moonscape of a desert that was arid and ripe for killing people through famine and thirst. And nonetheless, God provided. But more importantly, when you're in a desert, sure, a little bit of food would be helpful, but more urgently, how about some water? Uh, and, and that was a constant refrain throughout their wanderings in the desert. And this festival is a reminder. It is as much a living in tent festival as it is even more so a water festival. And every day the priest would go down during the seven days of the festival, down to the pool of Siloam, fill a golden pitcher and pour it out over the altar as a, an act of beautiful worship of the God who provided water for the thirsty, for those dying of thirst, providing water, water from the rock. And on the seventh day of the festival, they would pour seven times and then hold up the altar high above their head. And if it's at this moment, think of this at this moment, if it's at this moment where he's hot, holding high the provision of water before his head and, and jubilant, thunderous 
applause going on amongst the throng of hundreds of thousands that have packed in Jerusalem well beyond capacity. And if it's at that moment where Jesus steps up and shouts in a loud voice, let, imagine this, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In other words, you think that was provision from God? I represent the fulfillment of all real provision of God. There's, there's no equivocating on Jesus here. There's no hedging of bets on Jesus here. You're going to have to go all in one way or another. Verse, uh, then John goes on to explain, John the gospel writer, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And again, we'll have a study on that Tuesday. On the hearing of his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. This is the Deuteronomy 18 ultimate fulfillment of all prophecy prophet that they're referring to. Others said, here it is, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Divided is an understatement. They are in radically different camps when it comes to what this figure represents in their midst in the most solemn, holy time of the year at the most populated festival when all things are at its, at its heightened tension and he is going to bring not peace, but a sword of division. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 45, who asked, why did you bring him in? And listen to this. No one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob, this, this rabble that knows nothing of the law, has a curse on them. These, these are the shepherds of the people. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you'll find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. So there is division here, right? It's in this festival, again, to say the least. And the division is around, who is this Jesus? Some say he's a good man. Others say he deceives the people. Others said he's demon-possessed. And still others say he is the Messiah. And this is, I, I think, a, a, a brilliant capture by the Gospel writer John, a, an, an ancient Oriental writer that has so much application for us today as he would have at, at that very time. And here we come up with these four theories. A good man, a deceiver, demon-possessed, or, or perhaps uh, even a lunatic in, in, in that, that possession. Or he is the Messiah. A good man, a deceiver, a lunatic, or the Messiah. And as we look at these four possible theories of who Christ is, we're going to recognize that one is absolutely fraudulent... Two are flawed, and one is inescapably fabulous. The first 
claim here is that he is a good man. Now, before I get into this good man claim, there's a, there's a very famous logical argument about the identity of Jesus and the significance of Jesus that goes all the way back to a, a Scottish Presbyterian minister who, who once said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he himself deluded, was deluded and self-deceived or was divine. There's no getting out of this, and he coins the term, trilemma. Right? It's a dilemma, but it's a trilemma. Either he is, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. What's one thing that he doesn't include in this trilemma? That he's a good man. The one thing that everybody wants to embrace today. And, and this good man theory has been, I think, fabulously taken down as the most fraudulent of all theories. Well, why fraudulent? Because it shows that you didn't actually put any work into it. That you're looking for an escape hatch. You're looking for a way to, I want to do me and not have to deal with Jesus and how he wants me to be the ultimate me. I want to be my me. Not the creator of the universe is me, even as grand as that might be. I want to be my me. And, and, but I also don't want to like be coming down on Jesus. So I'm going to dismiss him arrogantly, but, but yet call him a good moral teacher. Here, here's, um, th this argument has been, again, brilliantly taken down by G.K. Chesterton. But, but C.S. Lewis likewise does a great job. But let me, let me read from your Christianity here. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He never intended to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus, in Scripture, in this very passage tells this crowd that he himself, he is the source of the power that created the universe. He is the source of the Holy Spirit. He is the source of the author of life. He is the source of all that transforms humanity and brings it into the culmination of all of God's design. 
He is the source of that. That's not just a good moral teacher. In John 8, the very next thing that we'll study uh, in, in the next couple of weeks here is in John 8, the passage begins with a woman caught in adultery. Now, if, let's say, God forbid, one of you commits adultery with, with, with Deb, it's, it's up to me to forgive Deb, Again, as impossible as that is. Uh, not the forgiveness, but the, the act of adultery. But, but I, mean, it's, 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 I know it's a silly um, illustration, but important. But I have then it on me to forgive Deb, and I have it on the, the, the guy as well that I could forgive him. If, let, let's say, Willie steps in and says to the guy, I forgive you, well, it's not Willie's purview to do that. Right? He's not the one who has been offended. But Jesus steps in to this woman who commits adultery. He steps in and says, I do not condemn you. And I forgive you. Who is he to do that? The man lowered through the roof in the beginning of Mark's gospel is there. And Jesus says before everybody, I know you're checking me out right now. You want to see what I'm going to say. Well, I'm going to go beyond just healing this guy. I'm going to go one better than that. And I'm going to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven. Bam. And then everybody in the room knew exactly what he was saying. Who is he to forgive sins? No one can forgive sins like that but God alone. So there is no confusion, no equivocating about who Jesus asserts that he is. Likewise, he'll say in John 8, that's right. In John 8, he will say, before Abraham was born, I am. He presents himself as pre-existent Yahweh. What in the world? Good moral teacher? No, there is no option for that. I have always existed. And then I will be coming back. He'll tell us at the end of each of the Gospels. I will be coming back to judge the world. You'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Like the Son of Man. Like the Daniel 7 image, but in reverse. And I'm going to be coming back. And every one of you will then fall under my authority, which I have all authority over all things in heaven and all things on earth. What in the world? Good moral teacher, you did not do any homework, if that's your conclusion. You are trying to escape the clarity of what it is that Jesus is trying to present to you. And don't let your laziness somehow stand. And, and by the way, if you found yourself even retreating to that dismissal of Jesus, let me encourage you now, get back to having just a logical mind about this and not throw that out the door so that you can, in a sense, live a life that you think is, is your best life when indeed Jesus has got an idea of your best life that will make your views seem really a, a trifle at best. Anybody else in the world who has ever demanded as much, any who, who has ever gotten such worship in the history of the world, think of Jim Jones, anyone who has ever demanded the things that Jesus has demanded and gotten it, think of Hitler, 
Anybody who's gotten that kind of allegiance, it has inevitably, in the history of the world, led to tragedy. It has inevitably led to cruelty. Except in one case. Except for Jesus. Not in his case. The demand for allegiance, the compelling allegiance that, that he brings, brings healing. Justice. Compassion. Deliverance. Fulfillment. And because of his claims, you cannot say he's just a good guy. Can't say he's a wonderful moral teacher. As C.S. Lewis said, he didn't give you that option. It's gone. It's off the table. It's off the table forever. And and if, if that's the case for you, my goodness, allow that door being shut to deliver you into a place where there's a breakthrough coming in your life. But if you know somebody who is... Who is trying to hold on to that claim? Just come up with your own list of things that Jesus said about himself. And don't let the person off the hook. They, everybody tries to wriggle off the hook with all that they've got on this. Don't let them off the hook. Just keep going back to the scriptures to, to make sure that at least we make a decision. Either have the courage to say that he's either a demon or a liar or a lunatic or Lord. But, but don't in your... Cowardice shrink back to some corner that doesn't exist. Here's an interesting idea here. Is that if we took a Venn diagram of all the people, or let's say the top 100 most influential people in in the history of the world, and then another circle that represents the 100 most famous people in the history of the world who claim to be God. Right? So you could kind of think of some megalomaniacs that, that, that fall into the red circle. And you can also think of some incredibly influential people that have shaped the course of human events. And, and again, this could be a diagram of three people. Jesus ends up in, in, in both circles. But here's the most important fact in all of that. There's only one person, objectively speaking, in the history of the world where those two circles Overlap. The only person in the history of the world that claimed to be God and also is one of the most influential people in the course of human events is only one person, one incredibly unique person with unique claims, that being Jesus, not just a good moral teacher. All right, let's move on to these, to these next two. Lunatic or liar? These are the theories that I consider faulty. Not just fraudulent, because I think some people really do try to make the case that he might be a lunatic or a liar, because you'd have to conclude something like that based on what he says about himself, if not Lord. But since those claims could at least be made based on the text, is it a valid argument or is it a faulty argument? Well, the problem is, is that we've got to recognize, does the theory that he's either a lunatic or a liar square with his life? Square with what you know about his life. What you know about his life from the Gospels, uh, from the letters, and and even from the early church. Does it square with what you know? And one of the things that we know even from this passage is the guards came back. And they said, in direct, really a a rail against authority of the, the Sanhedrin, came back and said, we decided not to arrest him. Because no one has ever spoken the way that he has. There was obviously something about Jesus as even his detractors who observed him 
recognized that was unlike any other person. What they're saying is, this man's life and his teachings, they're sublime. It's not the work of a lunatic. It's not the work of a deceiver. There are some people who maybe appear quite grandiose from afar, but then when you get up close to them, mm, that image doesn't hold water. And, and think of even some historical falls of people. Think of, think of a Pete Rose, right? A, a Pete Rose who was, who was a great hero to many, but then the people that are in his intimate circle of friends, the, the tell-all tales that come from that are, are really quite disturbing from the people that are closest to him. You know, the, the, the Kitty Kelly tell-all books that have populated the bestseller lists for, for the many years have actually marketed on this phenomenon for, for quite some time that our big public figures, once you get up close to them, ugh, warts and all, it's mainly warts that we observe. But not so with Jesus. Those that were closest to him, those that, that really had that intimacy with him, Jesus doesn't like get away with something that no one else has ever gotten away with. I mean, a lot of people claim to be divine, but not one of those people has ever gotten away with it. Not one has ever made the elite list of actually having a, an enduring following thinking that they are divine. Every one of them at some point has been dismissed as a fool or even as an evil person. But why is Jesus so different? Because the people who live closest to him were utterly and completely convinced he was who he claimed to be. That's why they lived for him. And that's why, almost without exception, they died for him as well. In close proximity, day in and day out, these were the people that wrote about him. And these were the people that were willing not just to go to the mat for Jesus. They were willing to go to the cross. Anyone who wants to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And they did. They did it because what he did held water. But even more, as we look at his life, you don't see this in a lunatic. You don't see this in a liar. You see compassion without sentimentality as he encounters the adulterous woman. You see tenderness without weakness. Strength without harshness, humility without a lack of confidence, holiness and uncompromising conviction, but with no lacking in his approachability. There is unbridled authority without self-assertion, tremendous courage with transparent vulnerability. He rails against the religious leaders. He's not afraid to take them on and take them down. And yet, is so compassionate, so kind towards the broken. He afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. This is not the life trajectory of a lunatic or a liar. And to dismiss him as either of those, again falls on faulty lines. And just as, as you realize that, yes, that doesn't work either, there's one more place where people retreat. And they're like, oh, let me get another option. He, he didn't really exist. It's just a legend. Or maybe he sort of existed, but the legend grew. 
again, I'm going to make a quick reference to C.S. Lewis because this one is so easily dismissed if you are intellectually honest and you know what you're talking about. C.S. Lewis was that indeed. He was a professor of ancient literature. He understood ancient literature as an atheist. And with that understanding, came to faith. And he wrote, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that none of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either it is reporting, though it may contain some errors, pretty close to the facts, nearly as close as today's headlines. Or else, the other option is, some unknown writer in the second century, without any predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind that was not invented beforehand and did not come into existence until millennia, until millennia later. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. There are Holocaust deniers that claim the Holocaust didn't exist. But, but, but yet, why did that never gain traction? Because people who've been in the Holocaust went on talk shows. They wrote books. They refuted them publicly. No, no, no. And likewise, the gospel accounts come too early. They don't come hundreds of years after Jesus. We have, we have pieces of the gospel of John from within five to ten years of the writing of John. We have hymns of Jesus that come from as early as perhaps 34 AD in 1 Corinthians 15, in Philippians 2, in Colossians 1. We have documentary evidence on Jesus that is as close as perhaps a tweet would be today from, from the historical perspective. Again, he, he says, I've read a great deal of legend and I'm quite clear that they're not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. The Gospels are not. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be, if they were making a legend. Apart from bits of platonic dialogues, there is no conversation I know of in ancient literature like John's Gospel. There is nothing, even in modern literature, about a hundred years ago, even, when the realistic novel came into existence, again, he's saying about 1850 is when the realistic novel came into existence. In the story of the woman taken in adultery, that we'll read very soon, we're told Christ bent down and scribbled in the dust with his finger. And nothing comes of this. No one has ever based any doctrine on it. And the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that it really happened. The author put it in simply because he saw it. Legend debunked. And again, anyone who is intellectually honest cannot retreat into the legend argument. And so, there's one fabulous conclusion. Jesus is Lord. That's why the apostles, his followers, were always going around saying, Who is this guy? Who is this guy that the wind and the waves obey him? 
Who is this guy? No one has ever spoken with such authority. Who is this man who feeds the 5,000? Who is this man who raises the dead? Who is this man who has transformed our souls? It's the Christ. It's the Son of the living God. It's the one who said, Do not think, I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is Lord. If we're going to take this seriously, and that is the final charge of, of what we have here, is that he is the one. He is the one that was anticipated. He was the one that it was predestined. He is the one that makes all the difference. Jesus is Lord. But if that is not made manifest, not just from our lips, but from our life, well then, we're not much different from anybody with another theory. And for us, who have come to that conclusion that Jesus is Lord, let's embrace that fabulous final conclusion. Let's embrace the fabulousness that, that we do have rivers of living water that flow from within us because He is the Lord. That we have purpose, that we have significance in our lives. But if it is not the case that He has rearranged all that you do with your time, your money, your relationships, your affections... If, if he has not radically been able to bring about a, a, a rearranging of your ambitions, your allegiance, your appetites, your agenda, your affection, your admiration, and even who matters most for your affirmation. If he has not done all of that, then he is not yet Lord. And if we're to be intellectually honest, if we're going to pursue this, just as a, a scientist pursues truth, he gives us a way to do so. He gives us the way in the same discourse. In John 7, 17, right here he says, Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Amen. You want to know if Jesus is who he says he is? You want to know if Jesus' teachings are true? Well, here's the instrument that you use. Your life. Align your life with Jesus and you'll know that He is Lord. If He has not rearranged everything that you do with your time, money, affections, emotions, with all of your aspirations, if He has not arranged all of that, truly arranged all of that, I mean, it's unmistakable. Anybody that knows you knows that, wow, there is a time in your life where all of that got rearranged. If that's not the case, well then John 7, 17 is the call of the hour. And, and I beg you, your arrogant approach, my arrogant approach, didn't get me anywhere. You know what finally did? Is to have a humility to ask someone who I know their life has been rearranged. Say, you know what? I think I need some help on this. Maybe you can guide me with some scriptures that I can hold to. And, and yes, you're not going to do the holding. I'll hold to it. And then I'll know. Let me encourage you. Before you get out of here today, let's come to that conclusion. Not just with our mind, not just with our lips, but with our lives. Amen. Jesus is Lord.